This podcast has been made possible by our local sponsor, Mutual Materials. They also help make Portland possible in a way, since a lot of this city was built with their products. That cool old brick building, it could be Mutual Materials. And the exposed brick wall designed into a coffee shop or store, it might be Mutual's slim brick tile. What about outdoor spaces? Paved patios, retaining walls, fire pits? Those might be made with Mutual Materials too. For over 120 years, Mutual Materials has been building beauty that lasts across the Northwest. You're listening to In Search of Portland. This is a personal journey, exploring the Rose City's architectural and cultural landmarks, forgotten gems, and the dreamers who populate them. My name is Brian Libby, and I've spent 20 years writing about local architecture and the arts. On season two of this podcast, we'll continue talking with a diverse group of creative minds and community leaders about how Portland became Portland and where we're headed. Thanks for listening. After so far featuring a small group of unlikely landmarks this season, a parking lot turned construction site, a horse stable turned restaurant, and a long abandoned flour mill, we now turn our attention to a statue on Southwest Main Street that currently isn't even there. I'm talking about the Elk statue. It was designed by Roland Perry and completed in 1900, and literally it's simply called Elk. It's the second oldest work of public art in Portland after 1888's Skidmore Fountain. The elk statue is uncommon for a few different reasons. Unlike most that we find in American cities, it does not depict a former president or a general or any other human, in fact. Instead, it was inspired by the herds of elk that used to roam here along the banks of the Willamette River long before there was a city of Portland. For over 120 years, the Elk statue stood downtown on a traffic median between two single-block-sized city parks, Lounsdale Square to the north and Chapman Square to the south. If you came into downtown via the Hawthorne Bridge, you would pass the statue after just a couple of blocks. But you'd actually pass the statue's rear end because it has always faced west instead of east. Maybe that's the Elk's way of protesting the indignity of being stuck in the middle of the street. After all, It could have gone in the adjacent Lounsdale Square, but in 1906, which was six years after the Elk statue was unveiled, the city instead unveiled a Spanish-American War soldiers' monument in the middle of Lounsdale. The adjacent park block to the south, Chapman Square, actually has no statue in the middle. They could have put the Elk statue there, too. But there's actually a reason the Elk was put in the middle of the street because the fountain at its base was intended to provide water for horses in a time before automobiles. In a sense, the elk statue is just a decoration added to the water bowl. Even so, consider that one block away from the elk is the second largest statue in the United States, Portlandia by Raymond Caskey, 
which sits atop the entrance to the Portland building. Yet while the name Portlandia is familiar to millions now, after being co-opted by a popular TV show, I would venture to say that the little elk statue is more truly beloved here. I mean, nobody's ever made the Portlandia statue a shrine. I first became aware of the elk statue in 1991, while I was a student in New York City. I saw the statue on screen in the classic Gus Van Sant movie, My Own Private Idaho. The movie is loosely based on Shakespeare's Henry IV, but it chronicles the lives of two young street hustlers, one a narcoleptic orphan played by River Phoenix, and the other a mayor's son with a trust fund played by Keanu Reeves. It starts in Idaho, continues to Seattle, then mainly takes place in Portland. In the first scene here, the opening shot features Reeves cradling an unconscious phoenix in his arms at the base of the elk statue. But the statue actually took on an altered look in the movie. There's a rider atop the elk and a different title inscribed at its base, Coming of the White Man. In real life, that's actually the name of a different Portland statue in Washington Park. Coincidentally, it's the one other statue that former Mayor David Thompson donated to the city. But in the movie My Own Private Idaho, which is largely about homosexual identity, the title Coming of the White Man is an inside joke, referring to the Washington Park statue long known as a cruising spot. Now let's flash forward to the summer of 2020, when the elk was preemptively removed from its base by the city of Portland's Regional Arts and Culture Council. That's because the statue's location, across from the Multnomah County Justice Center and the Mark Hatfield United States Courthouse, was ground zero for the social justice protests that continued night after night for several months after the killing of George Floyd by the Minneapolis police and a subsequent violent crackdown against protesters here by the Federal Department of Homeland Security's troops. In recent years, we have seen statues all over the world removed or defaced by protesters, dramatically bringing to society's attention the fact that many past historical figures we lionized were actually, with the hindsight of history, complex and even morally questionable figures, racist in many cases, or at least part of regimes with such values. There is the statue of Confederate Civil War General Stonewall Jackson that was taken down in Richmond, Virginia in 2020, for example. There is the statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee, an ancestor of mine as it happens, that was last year removed from the U.S. Capitol building. To me, it's actually shocking that they were still there. Of course they had to come down. Yet it's important to note that last summer, the elk statue was removed by the city preemptively. Protesters did not deliberately damage it, as was rumored on social media. During the summer of 2020, this whole area of downtown Portland was repeatedly vandalized following violent police crackdowns on protesters. Studies have long shown that there is a cycle of influence between police violence and vandalism. They encourage each other. History also shows that legitimate social justice campaigns, like the women's suffrage movement a century ago, often came with attendant property damage. In 2020, it got all the more confusing, though, because long before the protests, downtown Portland was largely boarded up because of businesses closing during the pandemic. What happened to the Elk statue was that its base was damaged accidentally. During the protests, the statue became a gathering point for demonstrators, so much so that bonfires began to be lit in the waterless fountain at its base. 
those bonfires caused damage. So the city made the decision to preemptively remove the statue before it was accidentally toppled. A few months ago, I got to visit the elk statue in storage. I wanted to prove it hadn't been destroyed. I didn't want the disinformation about it to spread any further. After receiving permission from the city of Portland to visit the statue and getting the coordinates to a secure storage location on the northern edge of the city, I found the statue in the corner of a large warehouse strapped to a wood pallet on the floor. Although I'd mourned the statue's removal from its spot downtown, now I was actually getting much more of an up-close view than I, or just about anyone, had ever had before. I could see differently colored specks of paint near the back of the statue, but otherwise it was in perfect shape. I could get a sense of the bronze in its patina. Seeing the face of the elk up close and reaching out to touch the statue, I felt connected to it like never before. It made me think of an old Looney Tunes cartoon made during World War II that I saw several times on TV in the 70s as a kid growing up wherein a dog mistakenly falls in love with a bronze statue of another dog called Daisy. The male dog had happened to kiss the Daisy statue at the exact moment it was struck by lightning and mistook the electrocution for romantic fireworks. I certainly haven't kissed the elk statue, but without any doubt at all, it's my favorite work of public art in the city. So today in our first interview, I talk with art historian Fred Pointer IV, author of the 2021 book, Portland Public Sculptors, Monuments, Memorials, and Statuary, 1900 to 2003. Pointer is also currently working on a book about Roland Hinton Perry, sculptor of the Elk statue. Perry created several famous works on the East Coast, including the statue atop the Pennsylvania State Capitol building in Harrisburg, as well as a series of bas-relief sculptures outside the Library of Congress building in Washington, D.C., and two statues at the Gettysburg Civil War battlefield. Our second interview features Beth Nakamura, a longtime photographer for the Oregonian newspaper who spent months covering the 2020 protests. A year earlier, Beth was part of a team at the newspaper that won a regional Emmy Award for the multi-part news documentary, The Ghosts of Highway 20. I've long been a fan of Beth's photography. So let's get started. And thanks again for listening. Fred, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate you having me. And uh, it's always a pleasure to talk about uh, art history and local art history here in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, you bet. So I wonder if you could just tell me about, uh, could you just talk a little bit about your journey to, to Roland Perry and, and maybe a little bit about your um, interest in, in, in statuary and, and memorials and monuments? Certainly. Um, you know, I, I really started delving into uh, the subject of, of sculpture and, and Northwest sculptors in particular back when I was working at the Washington State Historical Society uh, in, in, um, starting in 2006. They have one of the largest collections of a, a sculptor by the name of James Wen, who uh, was active uh, up until his death in 1973. Wen is probably best known for doing the the large bronze statue of Chief Seattle, which is near the Seattle uh, Space Center, Seattle Center. And uh, he did that in 1912. 
as one of Seattle's first public artworks. And Wens, through doing research about Rant Wen and looking at collections, I did my first book about him as a biography and about his life and work. And it really piqued my, my interest as an art historian in, in how sculpture, and particularly American sculpture, has developed over the past 100, 150 years here in our region. And it's kind of one of those one thing led to another. My second book expanded not only about when, but 12 other sculptors uh, of, the, of Washington state. And really there was, what you find in doing this kind of research is that there's inevitably some crossover. Uh, sculptors did works in other cities like Portland. And that really kind of led to my, new, my latest book about Portland's public art sculpture uh, over the past 100 years, of which there are 10 different sculptures discussed. Given uh, that Seattle and Portland are, are relatively young cities, uh, over their history, did they tend to be um, calling upon sculptors from other parts of the world, like the East Coast more often, or did they tend to employ local sculptors more often? It really, it really was both, uh, in fact, and, and Roland Hinton Perry is a good example of how Portland, uh, a patron by the name of David Thompson, uh, who was, he had been mayor of the city twice, uh, was a local businessman, quite influential, uh, hired, commissioned Roland Hinton Perry from New York to come out west to Portland and um, create this sculpture for, uh, for, the, for the city of Portland. It was actually the, very, the second public artwork um, that was done as a, as a fountain for Portland. Uh, and, and Perry completed that commission uh, in 1900 at the turn of the century. So what in your mind makes Perry Perry, so to speak? Like, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about anything that would be uh, a characteristic of his style. Like I know that he studied at the Ecole des, des Beaux-Arts in, in Paris. And so sort of like the Harvard University or Oxford University of, of design and arts in, in, in the 19th century. Uh, and so um, I would imagine that would have informed a really kind of classical, neoclassical style. But how would you describe Perry in terms of his style? Well, uh like Amer a lot of American sculptors at the turn of the last century, um, he was trained in Paris and he did uh, take a lot of his influences from that formal training. You know, the, the Beaux-Arts movement uh, from the 1830s up until the end of the 19th century was, was predominant throughout the world over um, as a Western sculptural tradition. It was, it was an architectural style, meaning, and you had, sculptures that were in public fountains or uh, in front of, of new buildings with uh, these elaborate facades that were very decorative, ornamental. Um, but at the same time, they also drew, as you say, neoclassical uh, inspiration uh, from things like, like Greek and Roman mythology and the figures, um, this flair for dramatization of these figures. What fascinates me about Perry and the American sculptors is that they kind of took, they took this training and this influence and they gave it a unique American twist. And that's where we see the subject matter and the choice of subject matter come into play. Uh, things like local wildlife, like the elk, which funny enough was not something Perry selected. It was, uh, 
it was part of his commission by Thompson. Thompson uh, had um, had known about the uh, the Roosevelt elk in Oregon, and that Portland had been one of their traditional feeding grounds and range ranges. And so, uh, in kind of a nod to that history and that local connection between Portland and this this animal, that formed a big part of his basis for the commission that he had Perry do. That's really interesting to me because uh, I feel like over my writing career covering uh, a combination of design and the arts, I often find it interesting to see creative people who are maybe trained in one discipline and then end up applying that to something a little bit different. Like in architecture, for example, you have a lot of architects who are trained in that same Beaux-Arts tradition, but then go on to work in modernist architecture or you might have you know a punk rock musician who has classical training or something and and so it's interesting to think of Perry who is really trained in in the classics you know in in the greco-roman western tradition and as part of a time where the architecture of that era as you were saying is all kind of roman columns and neoclassical influences um and uh yet here he is doing something that is a little bit of a departure from that tradition and is is more about depicting a creature from the natural world and uh um i wondered also um what you might make of that context because I was trying to think of uh, animals in statuary in general, and they exist a little bit, I guess, in that Beaux-Arts tradition. Like, I think a few places where they're kind of like lions sort of guarding something, like the New York Public Library or um, uh, Lord Nelson's Column. And uh, yet I don't think of too many animals in classical statuary in general, especially if they're not attached to a building. Yeah, that's that's a really good uh, point, Brian. You know, it, it's it's interesting how, in addition to the way the style evolved from this bow arts that was almost imported to the country here in, into the states, you see you see American sculptors taking it some taking it in different directions. You mentioned the the statuary. Um, that, that are out front of, of architectural um, buildings. You know, a good, a good example are, are, are lions. There's an example where, you know, this, this is not a new animal in, in either art or sculpture, but in, in the United States, you had oftentimes lions, and Perry did these too. He did it for the Connecticut Avenue Bridge in DC. Oh, where right. Have, where you have a pair of lions, and, and they're, they're symbolic of guardian figures. Um, and, and what happened was, you know, with, with sculpture and being, those being more ornamental and, and symbolic of, uh, an institution's role, like if outside a library, New York public library, for example, the, the lions are symbolic of strength and protection. Again, this kind of guardian motif that you see repeated in different places, but American sculptors took that, and with the support of, of groups like the Brotherhood of Elks, like fraternal orgers that were adopting these animals, you saw a really huge proliferation of animal statuary. And this, this kind of plays into my next book about Perry and, and the elk as an animal uh, in statuary. <clears throat> the, the Brotherhood of the Elks ended up doing a series of of these uh, sculptures called Elks Rest Memorials. And they, they put them throughout the United States uh, as grave sites. 
you had these fraternal brotherhood grave sites in different cemeteries, sometimes more and several in one state. And, and this, the statue of the elk would be at the center of these grave sites. And it, it kind of got to the idea about the identity of the brotherhood and, and what the elk symbolized. Um, and it, it was expanded. They, they took that statue and it, it started appearing in fountain sculptures and outside uh, elk's lodges and became very widespread until you have what we see today with, with modern sculptors, people like TD, sculptors like T.D. Kelsey, Dennis um, Jones, Rip Caswell, who, who are also using the elk as a standalone art form. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's the way, the different directions that, that it's gone uh, and with, with animals at the center as an as a inspiration for this content is, has been great to see. Yeah, and I, I guess there would have to be um, some significance of the elk in, in Native American culture as well. And uh, I want to say that I had read somewhere that, that um, the elk could actually be seen as a kind of protector figure in terms of the symbolism of, of Native American culture. And that would actually make it a little bit like the classical lion, uh, if that's true. There are some comparisons, certainly, uh, and in the cultural significance can't be denied in Native American um, history and heritage. Here on, on the West Coast, for example, Coast Salish, they have animals that identify family clans, Raven Clan or the Bear Clan. Uh, elk is certainly in as one of those fig, totem figures. So it's, it's, not, it's not just a tradition that's limited to Western sculptors by any means. Um, and getting back to the other early example of the guardian figures in, in Asian cultures, um, the lion was seen as a symbol of prosperity um, when, when it appeared in, in front of an architectural site or temple. You know, uh, one other kind of uh, offshoot occurred to me while you were saying some of that. You were talking about uh, ravens and bears and lions. And uh, there's all one thing those animals have in common to me. And it occurred to me that if Portland should ever uh, get for itself a, a National Football League team, then maybe they need to be the Portland Elk. Uh, uh, although, you know, it's like you want to put an S there, I guess. Like uh, you, you, the brain almost wants to say like the Portland Elks if they're a sports team, I guess. But, uh, um, uh, you know, it occurred to me all those other animals um, that have ties to either classical statuary or, or Native American symbolism, they've all been manifested in, in sports team names like the Bears, the Lions, uh, even the Ravens. But, uh, but we don't have a, I can't think of a single sports team called the Elk. And I think uh, we need to change that. <laughs> Well, uh, certainly something to for future generations to consider. That's I, yeah. I, you know, it's I love how artwork can inspire and help people with their identity. Um, for me, that is the draw of public sculpture, learning about its history, how it's changed over time, and to give you an example with with the Elks uh, statue in Portland. You know, at the time it was unveiled in 1900 there was a shortage of drinking fountains in the city for, for animals and really horses. You know, we, we take it for granted today, uh, but, you know, back then cars, cars were not what they were today. They, it was horses, was the mode of transportation. And Thompson, who sat on the Oregon Humane Society as its president, 
you know, he noted this. This was part of his um, motivation for, for doing this uh, commission with Perry uh, in 1899, actually before the turn of the century. He wanted to add a drinking uh, fountain for animals. And so you had this very functional uh, purpose driving this, this public artwork, which, um, which in itself has changed over time. You know, we don't have lone patrons determining what public artworks should go in places anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this does seem like a way that, that uh, things have changed over time, that, uh, that it really is a more consensus-building process and a more transparent public process that is often part of, of selecting public art. It makes me wonder if that's maybe for better and worse, because um, it's certainly for better because we want... Um, public buy-in and we want people to feel like it's a democratic uh, process and, and that the ultimate product, you know, is something that people feel a sense of ownership and affection for. But on the other hand, sometimes when an individual donates something, uh, it might reflect more of a, a distinct point of view and there isn't that risk of like a lowest common denominator. So what do you think about the, the evolution of selecting statuary for the public? I think that there's a lot that factors into it. And, and part of the history that I've been able to research and, and see, understand, at least with Seattle and, and Portland and other West Coast cities, is that there has been a pro, an evolution, I don't want to say evolutionary, but there's been a, a, a process of change over time in the past century where, you know, the cities, they shifted away from you know, having no public sculpture or, or monuments to, you know, going to a, a committee or a commission-oriented model. In, in Seattle, you saw this in 1955 with the first Seattle Arts Commission. Its predecessor later, uh, which now works with Four Culture and the 1% for Arts program, which was established in 1978. There are just so many things that go into, you know, what makes a public artwork possible. Money is a big one. Uh, who determines who pays for it and how it's paid for? It wasn't until the second half of, of the 20th century that we really saw dedicated 1% of building projects that would fund these projects, which was good in that you didn't have private individuals footing the bill anymore and, and maybe having more having a biased say, you, as you say, we, it was more of a diversified democratic process of, of trans of, of determining, you know, what is the identity? What, what is it about this particular proposed artwork that serves the public's trust? Um, and not, not to get too ahead, but I think there's an opportunity here with the elk statue to reimagine it in terms of a future, its future display, if it goes back on to public display. Perhaps there's an opportunity to bring in the Native American community and, and have their voices heard in terms of its interpretation. Yeah, it, hadn't that something like that happened with the Chief Seattle um, uh, uh, statue? Like uh, there's a kind of accompanying artwork next to it now. Like it's interesting to think of how we could reintroduce the Elk statue, um, but have liberty to explore a different kind of context for it. 
Uh, you're, you're correct, Brian, uh, and that's a great example. Uh, the, the, there's a when, uh, James Wen bust that uh, that Wen did kind of concurrent with his larger Seattle Chief Seattle statue uh, for the AYP E Exposition uh, in 1909. It sits down at Pioneer Square. It's a bronze portrait bust of, of Chief Seattle, the city's namesake. What is great to see about that is that it has a component piece now with it that's a separate artwork called Day and Night by Edgar Heap of Birds, a native artist. And it gives a new kind of context to this old sculpture, but it, it still incorporates the identity of Chief Seattle. It, I believe it has uh, some quotes in Luchitseed as, as a big part of its visual narrative. Yeah, yeah. I, I think one of the reasons I came to really have a lot of affection for the elk statue is that um, it reminds me of, of certain types of art across disciplines that I love that um, it can be different things to different people. And, and as we've been talking about the statue here, that's only been reinforced for me that, that um, the fact that you can tie it to traditions in, in classical um, uh art and architecture, yet you can also talk about its relation to Native American culture and um, the idea that that even it could be tied to something like a fraternal organization as well. Although I think I remember in in the case of the elk statue in Portland that the, I want to say I read somewhere that the Elks Lodge was actually frustrated because um, they didn't get to have a say in it and they didn't think it was quite sort of heroic enough. Uh, and so that's a whole nother conversation. But it is all of which to say, I think part of the success of the statue over time is that um, different people in different cultures and different groups of people um, could sort of claim it for their own for different reasons. And now you can also maybe make a case for it as um, something that is different from the kind of traditions we have usually um, sort of celebrating people. Um, and so, you know, it seems to me like uh, the success of this sculpture in part is is that so many different people and so many different sort of tribes, like kind of figuratively and literally, can kind of feel a sense of affection or ownership of, of, of the piece. I, I think that's a great assessment, and, and I'd concur with that. And and that uh, you know, it, in terms of the place, their statue's original place. There's a historical tie there, but it's not limited to that. Um, and it's you know the style in terms of I've read similar discussions about the, the Elks Lodge back in the day and how they didn't they thought the maybe the neck was too long. You know, it's I think that's a little bit of Perry and his his new American take on the Boer style. He he was trying to be a little bit more realistic uh, in terms of the animal itself, and he did that. I, I, I think I've, I've looked at hundreds of photos of elk, and it's you know it's it's not a bad representation in in that regard. Mm -hmm. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's I, I think it's a great it's a great piece. Um, I'm hopeful that at some point it may make it back into the public's eye, because um, as you say, I think I think it, it's not limited to having just one meaning or one interpretation. Absolutely, absolutely. Fred Pointer the Fourth, thank you so much for joining us on In Search of Portland, and it's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Brian. Take care. 
In Search of Portland is also sponsored by Capstone Partners, which plans, finances, implements, and manages commercial real estate investments for investors and organizations across the Pacific Northwest. Capstone's roots run deep with decades of experience and solid relationships. Living and working in Portland and Seattle means this local company is poised to find and act on unique opportunities that outside firms never even see. For more information, visit capstone-partners.com. Beth, uh, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Brian. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've been a fan of your work for a long time, and uh, it gives me kind of reason to ask, actually, uh, uh, before we get into some questions about the summer's protests and the Ilk statue, I'd love to just ask you how you uh, got into photography originally, like if it was something you were doing from a young age as a kid, and and then, uh, you know, it, it strikes me that there are all kinds of photographers out there. Uh, I'm an enthusiastic photographer, but almost everything I take a picture of doesn't have people in it for some reason. Right. And uh, other pe- other photographers are all about portraiture and, and shooting people. And so, uh, you know, how did you become the photographer you are today? Well, uh, growing up, I was never interested in photography. I was not the high school yearbook person or anything like that. But I do look back now and see characteristics that come into play with um, with how that all happened. And I think, um, you know, I've always been kind of an observer, I think. You know, I've, I've always been, I don't want to say split off, but I think, you know, from, from my earliest memories, I've always felt like I was at once living in an experience and observing it simultaneously. And I always thought, oh, that's a little schizoid. And then I grew up and realized, oh, no, that's, you know, that's actually, those are some things, you know, that I could parlay into, uh, you know, a life with some purpose. So, um, but I was never really interested in photography necessarily until I moved to New York City. I grew up on the East Coast. I grew up in a small town in Massachusetts. And, uh, but I have roots in New York. My grandparents emigrated there uh, from Russia, and I have a lot of relatives there uh, still, actually. So I moved there, and it was really, it, it's such a rich place, obviously, and it's such a visual place. And so I just really started seeing scenes that I thought, gosh, you know, that it was also, it was also interesting. And so I just borrowed my roommate's camera one day, and it, it kind of happened quickly from there. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Uh, uh, that appeals to me because I went to college in New York City and, oh, nice. and was I was a young kind of a young photographer, amateur photographer there, and I <laughs> have such a you know lovely memory for the most part of of walking around Greenwich Village or right. or other parts of uh, of of the city and, and taking pictures. Uh, what what years would you have been in New York City? I was uh, uh, Mayor Koch's New York City, so we're going way back. I was in a I was in a, a you know. A pre-Giuliani, uh, a real gritty version of the city that uh, that doesn't exist anymore. You know, Manhattan looks more like Disneyland now. Of course, I lived in Brooklyn, which was which was even grittier. But um, but yeah, that was uh, that was then. This is now. I think, 
you know, New York is also the really the birthplace of, if I think of photography in the United States, I think of West Coast as being much more informed by the landscape. And you see the great landscape photographers uh, come out of, you know, that region. And then uh-huh. on the East Coast and in New York, that's really what I think of as kind of the birthplace of like street photography and uh-huh. all the museums around there. And there was just so much rich history and there was so much in the environment that, um, that in, you know, reflected that. And so I was really influenced by all of that. Um, and I wasn't necessarily interested in journalism, although I was raised, you know, by newspaper readers surrounded by, you know, uh, great newspapering. Uh, but that really wasn't my entree into photography. It was only later where it was sort of like, oh, I could maybe get a job and get access to free film in a dark room. And that was really my motivation <laughs> in the beginning. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, so I, but I, I think always in my career, I, I've always tried to sort of push the limits of, of journalism and, you know, at, at its best, try to merge a kind of fine art sensibility with the interests of of journalism and informing the public and and sort of giving giving that first draft so i think i've always tried to straddle those uh those those ideas are you in any way an an adrenaline junkie as someone who who covers sometimes uh you know dramatic uh, incidents, or or is that just one of the um, the hazards of of the job? Do you get excited by w- w- if you hear like on uh, like a police scanner that something is going down? Like, uh, are you the type of photographer who can't wait to be in the thick of it, or or is adrenaline kind of beside the point? Oh, I think I've always been kind of nosy. I think that's kind of a base. I've always been curious. I think if if you're you know, journalism is not for the incurious, you know? So, so yeah, I've always said, like, what's happening there? Or, you know, like, going back to my childhood, I would always sort of be, you know, caught staring at a, someone or, or a scene, you know? And so that that's something that is kind of part of my nature, certainly. Um, I think, you know, when I think of the things that, that really ignite me um, in terms of making work, it's actually, I'm always much more interested in things that are, that really aren't there as opposed to things that are sort of like blasting out right in front of me and kind of hitting me with a sledgehammer. So something like the Ghost of Highway 20 was very, it, it ignited my curiosity uh, and my skills because, you know, I was trying to tell a story about something that happened decades ago uh, in with nothing but, you know, retired uh, detectives and a bunch of deep woods. I mean, it's really hard to visualize that. So you have to kind of lean on your own skills to evoke something in the work. And that's, yeah. that's a lot harder, but it's actually, but then it's, I'm more engaged when I'm doing that. So uh, something that's playing out right in front of me that's, that's blatantly obvious is actually just, it's inherently less interesting to me. That said, the summer of protest was a kind of next level uh, experience <laughs> for yeah. anyone who was on the ground there. So I think there was the risk, you know, especially in what we what we affectionately call uh, the Fed Wars, you know, uh, that, uh-huh. that federal occupation um, in the, in the middle of in the middle chunk of that experience, where yeah, you know, sure, I was, you know, I was all in, and and you you couldn't help but be swept up in the the drama and the complexity of that, and just what it meant for people in Portland, but also, you know, what, what it, what it signaled sort of nationally and how, you know, looking back, it's sort of like 
we were caught up in the, you know, the throes of a, a both a propaganda war and a presidential campaign. So it was extremely complicated and, and yeah, it, 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 in, engaging. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let's back up for a second. Uh, when did you sort of get the bat signal, so to speak? Like, uh, when did you start to get an inkling that things were starting to happen down near the Elk statue in the Justice Center? Like, how soon after... Um, if I, if it doesn't seem crass to say so, how soon after George Floyd's murder were you down there and were people gathering down there? Right away. Uh, you know, and, and right away, it was clear. Uh, I mean, those first days when I look back, you know, I often will, you know, my my phone is with me always like, like anyone, but I use it as a kind of a reporting tool. And, and I always find that it's not it's not my primary tool, but I, I I often will use it, and I I think you know so I'll 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 primarily be photographing and sending notes in through the Slack channel and that that sort of thing. That's what we've done throughout this, but but I will often pull my pull my video out um, from my phone and and document that way. And I think in in some ways I think it's a way of sort of witnessing myself in the midst of this. You know, like oh my gosh, look what I'm seeing here. You know, it's it's a different kind of witnessing. Um, to my own experience. So consequently, I have, you know, uh, a rich volume <laughs> in my phone and in my cloud of, you know, what, what all went down from from my own perspective. And I can see if I look back, if I go into the months on my camera roll and look back into, you know, May, late May, I can see, you know, the beginnings of, of an uprising and, and people in uh, sleeveless shirts. And, you know, I mean, it's kind of sad looking back how, how vulnerable uh, it all was and and people all were but you know but i've got it all in my phone i've i've got i've got a record of everything you know at least you know from that i saw when i was out there i wasn't out there every night we we kind of rotated in which was helpful both for our own long game you know sustaining our own physical well-being but also for at certain point our mental health really you know to be able yeah. to step back a little bit was important so early on it was clear it was an uprising uh, and it centered around, you know, the Justice Center right there where the elk was and and uh, the federal courthouse, although it wasn't it wasn't right away there. So but it quickly coalesced and, and downtown became, the you know, the center of it all, as as, uh-huh. as we know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And uh, um what was your uh, kind of uh, getup like? Like, how, were you wearing a, a gas mask right away, or, or uh, I seem to recall some pictures of you eventually having uh, all kinds of stuff on. Uh, how soon did that all come into play? Not right away, and I, in fact, I, 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 I think of it as sort of being like a lobster in a pot. You know, like you, you get thrown in, and it's kind of cold, and little by little, and eventually it's boiling, and you don't really know quite what happened to you. So it was a slow you know, accumulation of, uh, you know, physical accoutrement, you know, uh, eventually, uh, I got a stab vest, you know, now we're, we're all, you know, Kevlar bulletproof vests now, mm. but in the beginning I had a stab vest, uh, eventually I got a gas mask, we have helmets, you know, a lot of that stuff we had at the Oregonian, um, you know, from past protest coverage, but we had to update our gas masks and that sort of thing. So now, you know, we have all peripheral vision, which is important both for working with cameras, but also just for your situational awareness. But that was a slow, you know, that was a a slow uh, process. It it didn't all happen right away. And, you know, protesters, Uh you could see them change also, you know, they went from sleeveless uh, you know, to now you see black block, it's, you know, they, they look like warriors, you know, just like, mm-hmm. so. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, if you wouldn't mind, if it's if it's not traumatic or anything, I wonder if you could walk us through the night you were injured. And uh, I, I found a, a tweet from yours from June 15th that reads, uh, while covering protests, I was slammed by a baton from behind by police. Just before that, I was shoved hard. I'd made it clear I was press, both hands up, ID in left hand, camera in right. This happened sometime between 12 and 1 a.m. Friday night. Uh, so um, uh, we have the basics there, and I wondered, like, um, if it's okay to ask, like, are you okay now, like, physically and mentally? And and uh, I wondered, like, if, if it was hard to go back uh, uh, that first time you went back and covered the protests some more. And um, and how much do you feel like this is part of a disturbing trend of, of uh, press freedom violations and violence against media happening nationwide? Well, I, I want to say that uh, the night that I was batoned, um, I didn't, you know, the next day I had, at that time, I, I sort of stopped posting a lot of this to social platforms because I could see the harm over time that was causing because of echo chambers and algorithms. But but these were the early days uh, and I was still, you know, posting a lot to Facebook, which is a you know, an active platform. Those, those are active readers and, uh, and of course, Twitter, but, um, and sometimes Instagram. Uh, I didn't uh, talk about that in my post the following morning, um, but I did mention I got batoned in a comment. And I did that on Facebook because, you know, though there's a big audience there, I kind of think of it as like family and friends, um, you know, old friends and, and relatives and that sort of thing. And I just said, hey, you know, this happened. I just put it in a comment, very low in the comments. Um, but, you know, I'm fine. And then um, that Monday, that was, I think, a weekend. And that Monday, uh, I woke up and uh, on Twitter saw that uh, an a editor had posted on Twitter what happened to me. So it kind of migrated over from, you know, my my, you know, innocuous to me comment to now it's on Twitter. So the reason why I, I I tweeted about it was because I thought, well, that's my story. That's what happened to me. And I will, for the record, put this out there. And then it kind of just took off from there. So I wasn't, you know, I got a lot of, we get a lot of uh, blowback on Twitter. I think when you're female, you get even more. And, uh, and I took a lot of heat for that uh, from people who thought I was just, you know, a crybaby or whatever. And it's like, please, you know, I mean, I was just out there doing Jeez. my job. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. But, you know, that, that's another story. Um, but I thought, you know, I'm, I'm going to own that. That's my story. That's not for someone else to say. And, and so here's clearly what happened. And end of story. Well, that was kind of the beginning of the story. So uh, and so we filed an incident report so that they could look at that. And, you know, that was a decision. And I, I, I could have said, no, don't do that. But I said, yes, do that. Because I want, um, I, I thought people should be, uh, this should be seen, you know, this should all be as transparent as I could make it. And so that people will be held to account for this kind of behavior. It was at the time, gratuitous in my mind, you know, I was holding up my press pass, I was saying press, press, I had my, I, and I do this. If you see, you know, now there's all kinds of streamers and video everywhere, and you'll see me in videos months later, even holding my camera, press pass. You know, these these are tense situations. So it's not like I'm, you know, I'm I'm just a silent 
person there just trying to do my job. And but I also want to alert them, hey, it's me, I'm doing this. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to interfere with what you're doing. They said go north. I turned around, I started going. You know, yeah, I'm kind of shooting pictures as I go here and there because I'm in the midst of a, a volatile situation. Uh so, you know, I'm continuing to do my job. So, you know, uh, now I look back and think, oh gosh, those were such innocent days. You know, a little baton was like nothing. And at the time I didn't feel like it was, you know, that big a deal. Uh, but it also, you know, I, I can look, look back at that. That was really small compared to other stuff that happened to us. I mean, I was, you know, during when the feds were here, I was hit directly with canisters, you know, bruises on my body. We had all kinds of stuff happening. And that's just with journalists, okay? That's not even with what was happening, you know, to to so many of the protesters. Uh, mm-hmm. But but I, I look back and I think, you know, now I really understand. I mean, my one takeaway is, you know, I remember, I don't know, over the years thinking, you know, what is the definition of assault? And thinking, you know, oh, it's kind of funny how even just like a little you know, a little tap or, or something, you know, that seems so innocuous could actually be considered um, assault, you know, meets the the bar or the, the legal definition. And now I understand why. Now I understand. Now I, I'm like, yep, that, 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 you know, you just to physically violate someone's boundary. Um, it's, it's really violating. It's, it's really offensive. Even, you know, a, a shove or, you know, and the baton was sort of like a, it was a parallel, you know, it didn't club me vertically. It was like a parallel, you know, holding the bar horizontally and pushing me. And it was against my, I carry a lens belt, which is kind of a cushioned thing where I carry extra lenses in. And it was, you know, kind of cushioned by that. So there was no mark on me or anything like that. But, you know, it's it's very violating. Um, and, and it was gratuitous. I didn't do anything to earn that. I, I was just trying to do my job. You know, when is that ever okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it says something more, too. Like, uh, this maybe isn't quite an isolated incident, and it maybe speaks as well to the the, the plague of misinformation that is out there where, where the media is being vilified right. uh, as the messenger. And... Um, uh, what what have you heard from other journalists in, in Portland or or journalists in other cities? Uh, do you feel like there's been a, an increasing trend of of violence against journalists covering some of these incidents? Oh, there's no question about it that the, that that was uh, uh, everywhere. You know, through this and across the country. I mean, there's there's been over a thousand press violations reported to the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker, and I throughout these protests, I believe that is wildly underreported because I know just being on the ground, you know, there, there's so much chaos, so much goes unreported, uh, and um, you know, people are just trying to get through the night and and get their work done. They're not, you know, uh, I just think a lot of it goes unreported. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to say. I, I'm not a social scientist. I'm not, you know, here with bringing any authority to this. Um, I will say a four-year propaganda campaign against journalists and journalism, I certainly would imagine is a factor in this sort of, um, you know, disregard of our role, uh, our, 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 our protected role, I would add, um, mm-hmm. uh, in you know, in the United States and, you know, keeping, uh, keeping uh, accountability um, to people in power and mm-hmm. uh, for, on behalf of the public. 
And I think mm-hmm. um, that has been vilified, and we have been made the enemy. I think that's clear. Uh, and it's only getting worse, uh, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, parlors put a thing on our back. and um, A bounty. Yeah, basically. I mean, you know, I just, we're, we're soft targets uh, out there now, and it's all very... Uh, uh, dispiriting, to say the least. I mean, it's 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 alarming. That's right. That's right. It was really a, a summer with multiple chapters, and and it was first about um, protesting police brutality, but then uh, it became something more. Um, it became um, you know armed federal troops um, uh, violating people physically and violating their right to free assembly and. Uh, it essentially uh, also made me curious about something going on both from police and the feds, this uh, uh, this question of when is a riot a riot? And it seemed to me, I was curious of your opinion, that uh, it seems like uh, sometimes riots were being declared when maybe a lot of people believed that it hadn't quite risen to that threshold yet. Um, and so um, whether it's the declaration of a riot or, or just the the... Uh, behavior in general. I'm curious what you think about the kind of offensive aggressiveness that that you were seeing out there, either from Portland police or the feds. Like, uh, how much do you believe that they were forcing the issue? Um, and do you do you think that's true that that uh, riots were being kind of declared as a as a as a pretense uh, to be able to uh, take action in that way? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a loaded question. <laughs> Certainly, you know, uh, it it certainly seemed to me that, there, you know, there was no sort of textbook like this is a riot. This is an unlawful assembly. I mean, that, you know, that was uh, a fluid kind of definition depending on, you know, yeah, what what they what they seemed to want to do at the time. I mean, there were plenty of times where nothing was declared and I was surprised there were there were a lot of times when something would be declared an unlawful assembly that to me seemed utterly lawless and riotous and I was I couldn't believe they didn't elevate at that point. And then there were the times when a riot would be declared within minutes and I and I think why is this a riot? Like would it would it you know, so there was clearly there's clearly no like hard and fast, you know, textbook definition of, you know, of of when and how to declare. That 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 was clear to me on the ground that that was kind of a fluid thing on their end, depending sure on what their motivations were at any given time. You know, it all seemed a little gaslighting you know (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. figuratively and literally right yeah Um, totally (laughs) now uh uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about the elk statue itself um i I wondered if uh you believed as i do that that the elk statue seemed to be something looked upon positively by protesters and and was um a, a place of assembly and it seemed to me also like after the elk statue was preemptively removed by the city that um, there was still a kind of spirit that remained uh, uh, with people making uh, um, kind of their own makeshift elks. You know, what were you observing about the kind of environment around the elk and, and, and the way the protesters looked at it? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. Um, I mean, it, it's interesting, first of all, that the, that, uh, that the elk statue, that the, the importance of the statue, the sort of 
energy around the statue and how things continued to evolve. And that became kind of a, uh, a, a an anchoring point, I think, for protests that was completely lost on the national, um, you know, in the national narratives, naturally, as were so many things, you know, they would latch uh-huh. on to the wall of moms and, you know, this stuff that was definitely interesting and notable. But, you know, for us, you know, the local journalists have a real more a deeper understanding of the communities you know we cover so so we could see you know the elk statue is really a thing and continues to be a thing uh and that was you know of course lost on lost on them uh, so um i don't you know was there a i don't know that there was a a sort of like you know declared affection for the statue itself necessarily but there was a gravitational pull around it you know it's literally positioned between these two buildings that are um, full of symbolism and resonance um, yeah. for, for people in the city and, and certainly for, for protesters. And, you know, uh, one of them is a federal building. This was the whole reason why, you know, the, the feds were deployed. So, and the elk is just literally at the center of this. And, and so I, I see it as sort of a, a an anchoring point, I think, um, for for people who were there. Uh, it would be really kind of fun to, if you, you know, if there was, a, you could make a little flip book of, of the elk statue, that would be really cool. You know, I never really, I didn't photograph it every time I was there, but it was certainly a, uh, you know, a, a touchstone, I think. And, and so I would always note it. And I remember the day I noted its absence, you know, and that was, uh, that tweet went a little nuts, I think, um, out there because, which is also an indication of, you know, where we were at and it's, it's resonance and meaning in the community that, you know, mm-hmm. the, elk, the elk is gone. I mean, I think that's all I said. I didn't, you know, there was no, nothing other than the statement laid bare and it just sort of took off from there. Um, you know, there were always fires at its base. Uh, people would gravitate around it. They would, you know, light fires there. Um, and so the base was getting destroyed. I could see that happening pretty quickly then it was gone. And, um, you know, yeah, then things would, things would be put there in its place. And, and then those would be taken. I think there was, I think Patriot Prayer or some group made off with, you know, this sort of makeshift elk that someone had, had constructed there in, in its place. And then they took off with it. And then people would show up at protests with like elk, uh, what do you call antlers? Them? Antlers, thank you. Yeah, people would show up at protests with elk antlers, and you know, it was always kind of heartening for everyone to see. I mean, I think the elk, you know, the elk in in for Portlanders is uh, is meaningful somehow, you know. And I think the 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 body language of the elk is uh, it's sort of this, you know, it, it's it's a position of strength somehow or 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 dignity, uh, and it, it's. I just think of it as kind of an anchoring point for people, a marker, you know, mm-hmm. and I think all cities, you know, cities have their sort of like, you know, landmarks that are determined by, you know, city officials or, you know, the, the better, you know, the, 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 the commerce community and that sort of thing. But, but, but cities have their own landmarks, you know, people determine what those landmarks are. Uh, and, and those are really, um, you know, touchstones uh, around which people have, 
a lot of feelings and, and a lot of experience. And I would say, I would say the elk, you know, if we didn't know it, we know it now. The, the elk yeah. is one of those places. So, so the, the absence of the elk is, is uh, also very meaningful for people, you know, and, and, and it's interesting too, um, even discussing the elk is kind of, uh, you know, can, can get a little, a little tricky. You know, I had, um, made mention of the elk in a post, I think on Facebook, and I have a, a friend, a, a dear friend, um, who uh, I had done a story on, and she is a native Alaskan of the Inupiaq tribe. Her daughter, you know, they're good people, and now we have this, you know, ongoing connection. Uh, she commented in Facebook, you know, just feeling really sad about the loss of the elk, and, um, you know, someone kind of went in there and trashed her, uh, to my dismay, um, you know, to uh, that uh, stop uh, idolizing, you know, objects and, and, uh, in place of people kind of thing, you know, they, they kind of politicized it and turned it, turned it into, uh, um, you know, something about, uh, race and, you know, a whole bunch of other things, which, you know, I think was unfair because I think that people can hold a lot of things at once. You know, this was a native American. She happened to be native American and she happened to be a little sad that the elk was gone. I, I don't think, I think she can, you can hold that and hold, you know, a desire for uh, social justice in the United States at the same time. I don't, I, you know, but, but a lot of that is lost in, in social platforms, certainly. So I think so. Uh, you know, uh, I actually learned uh, doing the other interview for this podcast episode that uh, the elk is seen traditionally in Native American culture as a kind of protector, almost like the way in certain types of, of classical architecture, they will have lions like at the base of something like the New York Public Library. They've got the mm, big lion, lions, lions at the base yeah. of it, and it's kind of symbolizing protection. Uh, and, and I think the elk, if I'm not mistaken, is seen somewhat similarly in that way. And uh, and yet I enjoy also the fact that there is a little bit of liberty taken, maybe anatomically speaking, with the elk. This is something I've also realized along the way with the elk statue, that if I look at a photo of an elk, um, it seems a little bit more kind of robust and muscular. And there's something a little bit more slender and, and, and graceful to the elk statue. Uh, you were speaking to this earlier. I, I, I think the statue, the elk statue, uh, maybe communicates a kind of combina combination of a pride and strength, but also vulnerability. Um, and I, I wonder if there's something that the, the protesters maybe even just subconsciously saw in that. And then also the fact that um, the fact that it is a statue that's not of a person, you know, you were alluding to somebody complaining about that earlier, uh, as it relates to kind of uh, social issues. But I think actually, you know, we're living in a time, of course, during some of these social justice, social justice protests over the course of the year, where um, certain statues in other parts of the world, or even here in Portland of, of, of leaders of the past have been torn down, like Cecil Rhodes at Oxford University in London or or um, or so forth. And um, it seems to me that um, the elk could actually be a kind of indicator of a way forward. Like we uh, have an opportunity to kind of rethink um, how, how and whom we commemorate. And it, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, some American president or a, or a World War II general. Not that there's anything wrong with commemorating those people too, but you know, um, I don't think we see many animal statues like the elk in general. And, and uh, that's true. Um, yeah, I never thought of that. And I think it also, you know, that that makes that uncommonness makes it a little quirky. And I think sometimes when you were describing the protesters, um, I was reminded of the fact that, you know, I've watched 
Portlanders protest in the past, especially kind of incidents passed before George Floyd. And when there wasn't quite the same threat of violence, it seemed like there would be this kind of keep Portland weird personality that would come out, like the protest would have somebody on stilts or, um, you know, somebody juggling. And, and there would be, along with the earnest political expression, there would be a little bit of, of a quirky almost joy. Like I remember this from the Women's March at the beginning of the Trump administration. You know, they say they say traditionally that protests are actually, one of the purposes of it are, are for that community of people to reveal itself to each other. And, and, um, and so I think maybe the elk statue, um, you know, is conducive to that kind of, um, you know, progressive Portlander personality that attends the protest that is very serious and earnest in one way, but also getting a kind of glee in, in um, parading with your brothers and sisters. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that. I think, you know, the, the protests in Portland uh, were so complex. Uh, they also really mirrored, um, you know, who and what this community is, you know, in, uh, in so many ways, and, and many of them, yeah, sort of delightful. I mean, you know, it was, it was more, it was, uh, it was riotous, it was full of rage, that is the vocabulary uh, of a protest of the unheard, all of that erupted. Uh, it was, it was laced with uh, anti-Trump uh, sentiments. It was a pent-up pandemic uh, stuff, you know, it was a lot of things. Uh, it was, it was primarily, uh, about racial injustice and police brutality though. I I will say that, but, but yeah, it it was, it was uniquely Portland in so many ways. And, uh, (laughs) you know, like I, I have dealt with a lot of national editors throughout this and I did a couple of small documentaries and maybe working on another one now. So there's a lot of interest in this that's ongoing because, because there is so much here that I think is in many ways sort of a harbinger of what will happen and what clearly has happened elsewhere Mm -hmm. subsequent Mm -hmm. to this. Um, But, but, you know, it's interesting, you know, when people look at my raw takes and, you know, really see this sort of like raw, you know, unedited, uh, version uh they it's so funny you know because there'll be people who you know like here i never i i i don't typically refer to anyone as he or she i i just will say for example in a tweet you know there's a person doing this you know i don't assume gender identity and stuff like that or there'll be a lot of people here you know portland is a a big center for uh for the trans community and so you'll see that a lot of times play out in the protests well People, you know, in, you know, New York or wherever, I mean, there's plenty of that there, but it's like, oh my God, you know, like the things they're seeing in in my take are just sort of like, wow, that's so, you know, for them, it's just, whoa, that is very Portland and I'm, you know, or it's just, it's so unusual to them. And for us, you know, it's, it's normal, you know, it's, it's a rich and interesting place. There's a lot going on. People are very expressive and they want to be seen and heard. Uh, um, you know, as, as you said. Uh, and so I see all of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'd like to think that, that something positive can, can come out of those times, uh, can come out of this summer that, uh, there was a lot of pain. It reminds me of that, uh, old Donny Hathaway soul song, like joy and pain. Like it's all, yeah. it's all inextricably linked. And, uh, I think so. Um, and I, I think there was a lot of trauma that, that happened. It was a kind of a collective trauma, I think that happened, 
uh, in Portland to the city overall, I would say, even for people who weren't weren't there, but certainly to everyone on the ground, including us, frankly. I mean, if you were there as long as we all were, you share a, a, a collective trauma with people, even if you were there at for different purposes. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that there is there is a kind of a trauma bonding. Mm-hmm. that that happens and i think you know that has happened i would say the presence of the the feds that that kind of like caused uh a real a, a real second wave of uprising and i think you know in some ways um you know i know um you know they 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 withdrew because um you know kate brown uh you know and and mike pence kind of got together and made that happen uh, but but I remember the president declaring, you know, Operation um, Diligent Valor, I think it was called, uh, a, a raging success. And to me, on the ground, it just seemed inexplicable. It just seemed like, you know, especially on their final night, it was so incredibly and indiscriminately violent. Uh, and then and then they just withdrew uh, slowly. But but mm-hmm. in terms of what we were seeing on the street, it was this sort of last night of, you know, it was kind of like at the end of a fireworks display, uh-huh. and, you know, that big shit show of fireworks. You know, that's what it was. It uh-huh. was unbelievable. And so, you know, I think there 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 there's a lot of trauma bonding that happened. And also, frankly, the potential for more radicalizing mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Be, because of it all. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it sort of had the, you know, I don't know what effect, I don't know what their long game was. Okay, did did mm-hmm. did what they do confirm for them what they were trying to say? You know that uh, to sort of turn an- anti-fascist, which frankly emerged as a response to the Trump administration. There was no talk mm-hmm. of fascism until that all happened. Okay, so all of this was so much drama playing out. You know, to what end? I, I am not here to say, Brian, but. Uh, <laughs> The thing I like to do is is to just literally kind of there's like a Seinfeld episode where George Costanza decides to just start doing the opposite of what his instinct is in in all cases. So I just try and reverse engineer everything like Operation Diligent Valor. Well, it wasn't diligent because they they um, they left actually pretty quickly thanks to um, protesters and Kate Brown. Uh, there wasn't valor, of course, because they were. Um, you know, being very un-American, essentially, uh, suppressing the right to demonstrate. Um, and and being a bunch of Goliaths, um, uh, you know, pre-accusing Davids. Uh, and, you know, if Trump says, goes out of his way to say mission accomplished, then that's to me a de facto admittance that, that they failed. You know, uh, when he started talking about how much more people were, were at his inauguration than Obama's when it was factually and visibly in the photos incorrect, that meant that he was expressing disappointment that not as many people came. Right. Um, right. It was so, a strategy. It's a, it's a know, strategy. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, and, you know, you know, I'm in a profession where, you know, y- y- if your mother says she loves you, you check it out. You know what I mean? So so we're suspicious of basically everything. And, you know, it was it was always my sense that there was just a boatload of propaganda coming out of that machine. But it was um, it was my direct experience on the ground in Portland, uh, you know, when when Trump would tweet, uh, you know, the 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 vets and the wall of moms, it's all fake. You know, I I. 
I, I've been here since the year 2000. I've raised my children here. When you when you have when you're a parent in a community, you're you're much deeper in a community. I knew a lot of those moms. Some of them are on my Facebook. We sent our kids to the same school. I know this to be true, and that that's a critical difference when you work in a community uh, that you live in, that you cover. You know, that's the value of local journalists that that, that mm-hmm. you can verify things and you understand things uh, on a much more granular level than someone who's parachuting in. Not that there's any wrong anything wrong with parachuting. I I, I respect it. I understand its its place uh, and its importance, frankly. But um, but yeah, it was uh, it was mind numbing uh, to have direct experience with with what I could see was clear propaganda and, mm-hmm. and at odds with my direct experience as a person yeah. in this community, as someone whose job is to basically lay out, you know, the facts as I'm experiencing and seeing it, you know, it just was a real, uh, real kind of gaslighting uh, uh, on many occasions looking yeah. back. And that's what fascism does historically is it, is it drowns truths in untruths Um and uh, that's why uh, journalists have been vilified by by Trump and the right is because journalists overwhelmingly are, are truth tellers. Right. Um, and, you know, he basically he admitted as much, you know, he admitted, I think, to Leslie Stahl. He directly said to her, I'm doing this so that when something does come out that's negative, no one will believe it. OK. I mean, he was very mm-hmm. clear. So, you know, and, and you can. You can look at everything that has happened and is happening uh, and continues to happen and now sadly plays out in D.C. We've seen it all here for a long time. Again, uh, that, uh, you know, all of this was signaled and all of it is unsurprising. It all uh, it all for me comes back to a, a New Yorker cartoon I saw years ago um, uh, where uh, there are a bunch of sheep in a pasture uh, and there is a, a billboard with a wolf saying, I'm going to eat you. Um, and one sheep is saying to the other, well, he tells it like it is. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, though, uh, uh, Beth, uh, this has been a great conversation, and uh, I really appreciate your time. And uh, if it doesn't sound so corny, um, thanks for doing what you do out there. And thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. It was a, a nice conversation. Another quick word of thanks to our show's sponsor, Mutual Materials. If you're a homeowner, you might want to go online and check out Mutual's Natural Stone Catalog at mutualmaterials.com forward slash resources. You can also visit their showroom, for now by appointment that is, at 2175 Northwest Raleigh Street. For over 120 years, Mutual Materials has been building beauty that lasts across the Northwest. All right. Thanks again to Beth Nakamura and Fred Pointer IV for joining us. Before we say goodbye for now to the Elk Statue, I'd like to tell you a bit more about David Preston Thompson, the man who commissioned the statue. 
I mentioned that he had been mayor of Portland. This would have been right around the time of the Second Industrial Revolution, so in many ways you can think of Thompson as a bridge to modernity. But mayor of Portland was only the third or fourth most prestigious office that Thompson actually held. He was born in 1834 in Ohio to Scottish and Irish immigrant parents. He came to Oregon at the age of 19 when he was hired to help herd sheep across the Oregon Trail. His first job here was helping to build Oregon's first railroad around Willamette Falls in Oregon City. A decade later, he was appointed a deputy surveyor for the United States and helped map the Oregon Territory. By 1868, still just 34 years old, Thompson served in the new Oregon State Senate as a Republican representing Clackamas County. The next session, however, he remained in office, but as a Democrat representing Multnomah County. Five years later, Thompson was appointed governor of the Idaho Territory by President Ulysses S. Grant, but he accepted the appointment somewhat reluctantly. Rather than moving to Boise, he commuted there from Portland. So in 1875, after just two years in office, President Grant asked for Thompson's resignation. In 1879, Thompson was elected mayor of Portland and in 1881 was re-elected. In 1890, he ran for governor of Oregon, but lost, returning to Portland and instead co-founding the Portland Library Association and the Oregon Humane Society, serving as president of both organizations. Then in 1892, President Rutherford B. Hayes appointed Thompson the United States Minister to the Ottoman Empire. He got homesick again, though, and resigned after only a year, returning to Portland once more. By the time Thompson's elk statue was dedicated in 1900, travel by horse was already becoming obsolete. That's the same year the first automobile show in the United States was held, at New York's Madison Square Garden. And signs of modernity were cropping up all over. In 1900, the first Hershey bar was produced. Kodak came out with its first Instamatic camera. And the Wright brothers began building what would become the world's first motor-operated airplane. As I think about David Thompson and the elk statue all these years later, most of all, I just want the statue to come back. Maybe its concrete base will need rebuilding, and some have even suggested that the elk statue could be placed in a new location. After all, a traffic median may not be the best location. If nothing else, the elk could be turned around, so it faces the river. Even so, given the history that has taken place with the statue at this site, be it a century ago or last summer, I would be just fine with the elk returning just as it was. This is not to say that after a year of pandemic and protests that Portland will ever be quite the same. But we are not in decline, certainly not the way it's been suggested, with right-wing pundits from afar comparing our progressive city to Pompeii. Portland in the summer of 2020 became a national lightning rod, as it has many times in the past. Yet often a storm is just what we need to clear the air. And in a time when statues around the world that engage in human hagiography have come down, I think the elk statue shows us a way forward, not to cast in bronze all too human figures and then insist on their immortality, but to celebrate something larger than ourselves, the natural world there before and after us. When we do bring the elk statue back someday though, especially given all the strife of 2020, I wouldn't mind the tagline from the movie My Own Private Idaho being inscribed newly at its base. Wherever, whatever, have a nice day.
In Search of Portland has been produced by X-Ray FM. You can listen online at xraypod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to the station and especially producer Jonathan Covington-Brem. Thanks also to our sponsors, Mutual Materials and Capstone Partners. As always, a big thank you goes to In Search of Portland's talented collaborators, including songwriter Chad Clark and his band Beauty Pill for providing music, and illustrator Nikolai Kruger for providing original artwork to go with each show. And a final thank you to my partner, Valerie Smith, who has acted as an editor and a sounding board for this entire podcast and its upcoming companion book. In the meantime, thanks again for listening, and please join us next time on In Search of Portland. Adios for now.